Thanks very much. It's great to see so many people here on a nice afternoon in Sydney. I'm just going to introduce the documentary, which I think is one of the better art documentaries I've seen in the last 20 years or so. It was directed by this woman, Lisa Imadino Vreeland, and she's married to the grandson of Diana Vreeland. So she has quite a, a good access to celebrity. And indeed, this documentary is all about art celebrity. If you think about our immersion in celebrity now, we think we really know people because we, we, we see their images every left, right and centre. This access to high celebrity that Lisa Imadino Vreeland had was quite fortuitous because what she did was that she op optioned the only authorised biography of Peggy Guggenheim and she befriended the author Jacqueline Bograd-Weld who published her book in 2014. It's, if you want a, uh, a contrast between this documentary, I recommend you have a look at, at this book, Peggy, The Wayward Guggenheim. It's a, a, a very interesting, slightly left of field take again on this wonderful person in the development of contemporary art and modernist art in particular. In the video, we, got, we, we see Peggy in many different guises. We see her as a young, scared woman, entering life, marrying, failing at marrying, being obsessed with being loved. Peggy spent most of her life in Paris because she could. In Paris, because she could, she met all of the other American expatriates who helped her form her vision. Now, if you read Peggy's autobiography, she's quite disingenuous. She says, one day in August 1938, I woke up and thought, gee, I'd like to collect art. But in actual fact, in Paris, she was very closely connected to, to the various elites of American expatriates, including Gert Gertrude Stein, Alice B. Toklas and their poodles, Juna Barnes, all of the texts that you see written about Peggy Guggenheim talk about her voracious sexuality. And indeed, what we see in this description is a, yet another example of the double standard. Peggy's a slut, men are not. <laughs> These are earrings made by Eve Tongi for Peggy at the height of one of her affairs. Peggy is so essential for the development of, of the great modernist style abstract expressionists, abstract expressionism. But what she also did was that she sponsored international artists. This is a photograph taken in 1942 of some of the artists that she sponsored to come to the United States and so survived uh, the Second World War because inevitably most of these artists would have been labelled degenerate and their work destroyed. So we see a whole range of European artists in this photograph from Braque through to Max Ernst, through to Max Beckman, through to Leonora Carrington, a whole range of artists that, that Peggy supported. Not just these famous ones, 
She even supported a, a Melbourne poet who specialised in free love. Another woman, by the way. It's Peggy thought that her support of art would, be, would have been much more respected. But most people commented on her own social engagement with artists rather than the work that she collected and displayed in her many art galleries. Again, it's a double standard. But what's really interesting about Peggy Guggenheim and why she is so important is that she's one of 10 women who actually established modern art. You have Gertrude Stein, Alice B. Toklas, um, you have Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, you have Mary Quinn, Julia Force, Lillian Bliss, all of these people, Marie Dreisler, very, very important for establishing this thing called contemporary art, this thing called modern art, with its emphasis on an individual response to the world, being in the world, acting in the world, which is one of the reasons I love this photograph. One of the key reasons why abstract expressionism was so controversial, so difficult for people, was the, uh, the rather Puritan obsession with representation that seems to colour United States art. Even when they are depicting the lower classes, as you can see here in this work by, by Glackens, which is Canyons. Next one. You also have um, a sort of a huge explosion of illustrated press from 1880s onwards as backdrop. And this is a cover of a, of a magazine called Life and it features one of the great phenomena of the 1920s and 30s, the flapper. The flapper was a young woman who was not chaperoned, who lived independently, um, whose shoes flapped or rattled on the pavement as she ran to catch the train or the tram, hence the name of the flapper. Next. This was for Jean, because I know Jean likes some jewels, but um, this is another context for, for the, the shift that abstract expressions have represented. In terms of design styles through the 1920s and 30s, you see various forms of, of historicist stylizing, cherry picking. This is a Cartier ruby and diamond brooch, um, which is a very good example of art deco mixed with a bit of chinoiserie. But what was changing as well was, was the city, the urban environments. In particular, New York had shifted completely from being quite distinct neighbourhoods. Those neighbourhoods were quickly being changed by rapid rebuilding. And um, this is some architects at an architect's ball in uh, 1924. It's sort of a bit creepy, isn't it? But um, <laughs> the skyscraper, the electric lift have changed our world. Next, next. What was also changing was the amenities, the actual services available to, F, to, to all people of all classes in, in major cities in the United States. This is a fabulous photograph by Berenice Abbott of people just getting on and off a, a, 
a, a, tra- a, a bus in New York circa 1926. By the way, Peggy Guggenheim gave Berenice Abbott her first camera. Berenice Abbott is vital for our understanding of Eugene Atjay's work and indeed um, encouraged Berenice Abbott to actually force American collectors to to respect and buy Eugene Atjay's work. And indeed, Abbott's work is very much influenced by Atjay's work later. But the great backdrop for the 1930s was the Depression, which began in 1928, lasted really right through until the rumblings towards the Second World War. But there were great philanthropic efforts throughout the United States. One of the, the most important building schemes in New York in the 1930s was the building of the Rockefeller Centre. And the Rockefeller Centre symbolised the strength of the American people, the American nation, to rise above, to become strong again. And the decorations and and the publicity surrounding the workers who were involved with the Rockefeller Centre underlined this, uh, this sense of heroism, this sense of great potential. But what was holding people back in the art world was what they thought an over-dependence on rather dull, old-fashioned values. But these dull, old-fashioned values, such as stability, working hard, making good, these ideas of social stability were, were spreading, were spreading through and taken up with gusto by the new immigrants to the United States. Remember in the period from 1890 to 1905, 11 million people arrived at New York. 11 million people came to New York from Central Europe. Now, those people those people who decided to remain in the East Coast or those people that travelled throughout all of America, they started having children. And what we see in the 1920s and 30s is the first generation of those immigrants to the United States and the sensibility that they had becoming more and more apparent. And the middle classes, as you can see here, this is... um, a middle class that you don't normally expect to see. This is some very proud middle class people from Harlem. They're people of colour. It's a photograph by Van Sant. But in the cities, you have a very visible shift in the social structure that had had previously existed. So the rise of new middle classes with new tastes. And these tastes were for an art that reflected their experience of, of living in the metropolis, whether it be Detroit, whether it be Pittsburgh, New York, Boston, people wanted to have art that reflected their reality. Now, for people of colour, their reality was also shifting in in fits and starts. One of the most important events for African-American people in the 1920s was this symbolic gesture facilitated by the First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, to allow Marian Anderson, a woman of colour, a great singer, to sing to the people. Um, 
in Washington DC. You can hear it live on YouTube, see it live on YouTube later. But in art, what you see is a watered down reflection of European avant-garde tendencies. So you see watered down revisions of surrealism, synthetic cubism, but with an American twist. This is a work by Charles DeMuth, one of my favourite American artists of the 1920s. It's in a style called Precisionism, but what's most important is the title. It's called My Egypt, and what he's saying is that the silos and industrial landscape of the American city is as epic, is as, is as important, is as vital and as historically significant as the pyramids, the temples of Luxor and the great monuments of the past, my Egypt. Maybe he's being ironic, but the way the diagonals shift the form of this, of this simple industrial building is very important. They, these diagonals take us to the bright new future of a world made whole through technology. Next. Probably the artist whose work was most contemporary of all artists in the 1930s, American artists in the 1930s, is the work of Stuart Davis. And Stuart Davis lived for a time in Paris, became enmeshed in, in the sensibility of synthetic cubism as developed by, by Ozenfand and followers of, of Picasso and Braque and Matisse. It was sort of like a melange. And this is a work which is, shows a nightclub scene, which is um, the syncopation is said to be influenced by jazz music. Another mural by Stuart Davis. Next one. But what was really most important in terms of the context of the rise of abstract expressionism was the reaction to this Puritan notion of representation. This Puritan notion of representation was emphasised particularly in the works program administration schemes for artists as developed by Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his various aides. This is, this is a, a mural in the post office in a town in Iowa and it's celebrating um, National Corn Day. It's heroic. I'm not sure which part of it's heroic. We can see dogs and we can see people with cats. We can see tractors. There's old and new. It's a community coming together. It's a, it's a vehicle. It's a grand machine. It's propagandist. Next. Grant Wood is probably one of the leading American regionalist artists. And his works are meticulous. They're quite odd. This is called appraisal and it's, um, we're not looking at the chooks, we're looking at young versus old. Who's going to do the right thing in the country? It's about social mores. Again, it's representational, but this type of work was considered not quite art because it was so much tied to the great European tradition of representational illusionism. Here's another Grant Wood. It's a little bit trippy, isn't it, this view of, of a village? But here you see how conservative art making is influenced by more avant-gardist uh, tendencies. There's a leakage, there's a porous sort of melding. Next. Probably the artist most interesting to our particular set of, of 
artists working with Peggy in the 1930s and 40s is Thomas Hart Benton. Thomas Hart Benton was the teacher of Jackson Pollock and almost like a surrogate father at times. He was the leading artist of the American Regionalist School. Again, we're seeing folks down home on the farm having a bit of trouble with the weather, but they'll survive. If you look at this late work by, by Thomas Hart Benton, with its swirls and its flux and movement, its pulsing energy, look at its, its neo-baroque form, its sway, look at the high-keyed colour, the shot colour, and think about Jackson Pollock's work. There's a lot that Jackson owes to Thomas Hart Benton. But also there were artists working with representation and tradition that actually take our understanding of, of those forms to another level. A much overlooked artist is Isabel Bishop, and she's one of my favourite artists from New York in the 1930s. She specialised in taking, in making these images, mostly of women, mostly of young women leaving work at lunchtime, people on the street, people doing ordinary things. And this is one of my favourite works of art by Isabel Bishop. Um, it's called Getting Ready. And it shows a woman checking to see whether she's got any, any lipstick on her teeth. It's intimate, it's humorous, it's in the moment. And this return to the moment is very important for artists involved with abstract expressionism, as we'll find out in the video. Next. We see Peggy in all of her guises, imperious, next one, distant, weird. <laughs> and we see her in a final resting place at um, the Guggenheim Museum in Venice. I have to admit one of the highlights of my life was to be part of uh, an Australia Council delegation and they had a reception on the, on the roof of the Peggy Guggenheim Museum. It was a fantastic day. We had mozzarella, we had bellinis. I've done it. <laughs> so let's have a look at, at, this, at this fantastic video. What's, what makes this video work is that for a change, we have the voice of, of the main subject, Peggy Guggenheim. And listen very closely to what she says, because in the absences, there is much that's revealed. Thank you.